0: Welcome everyone to the 36th episode of the New Gen Mindset podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. Happy New Year, so, Nick.
1: Happy New Year's to you too, bro. Um, uh, definitely an interesting uh, beginning of the year.
0: No kidding, especially what happened uh, down <laughs> in the, uh, the, the, the the drug dealer's house downstairs, right? It's, uh, so the States is turning
1: on itself. Now Canada is having all kinds of problems here in Montreal. We went into lockdown with curfews. So you have some history that's repeating itself right now.
0: Scary times, but, uh, Absolutely. so I just got back, I was in Florida. We did our interview there with Ben, which was, which was a good time. And, uh, we got to do the 14 day quarantine now, but, um, I think there's opportunity in this and we are bringing on somebody today that I think most people are really gonna wanna pay attention to because it's a gentleman that's been in the industry for quite some time. But before we get to that, I think it's important to really highlight the importance of what's happening, both in the markets and from a historical standpoint right now, right? We are, I think, I sound like a broken record when I say this, but I think you and I've been talking about this since we started this, Mm -hmm. Western- It's the macro. This is where
1: Rick Rule comes
0: in. Yeah. Western civilization is at a tipping point right now. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And history validates this tipping point. We have Ray Dalio that talks about the 100-year debt cycle. We have economists that are talking about how we're repeating ourselves. We have massive macro minds that are talking about how we just keep recycling the same behaviors over and over. And that's where it becomes dangerous. And investors, people that care about their capital and their resources and the money they worked for, these factors is a threat to the hard worked money you've created and the wealth you've created. These are risks. And these are things that have to be discussed, things that have to be analyzed and digged into. And this is where someone like Rick Rule comes in. Someone who's been in this industry, who's been in the investment world for a long time, who comes more from a um, natural resource background, but uh, watching him and a lot of people like him with these macro minds, honestly, it's, it's eye-opening. It, it shows you a world outside of typical Wall Street in North America. And once you step outside of that bubble, you start seeing things that are just not good and not positive. And that's detrimental to the risk factor of your capital as an investor.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also important to understand too what is happening from a macro standpoint, mm-hmm. right? This has been Well, we're in the new year, it feels, it still feels like 2020 in my view. And I'm sure most people can agree with that, but this has been the most divided, most split up division of both macroeconomic societal, and for lack of a better word, a political view that everybody doesn't seem to get along. And there's a lot of frustration happening right now, but what we want to do is like, we're highlighting a problem right now. I think our best thing is to really focus on the solution. I think you but in know, order to
1: do that, you have to talk about what is wrong.
0: Agreed. Agreed. And there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things wrong right now. Yeah. I mean, Quebec's a perfect example. Yeah. But with money printing <laughs> and the total amount of chaos that's happening, the stock market is, is still going up. It's as if nothing matters care. anymore. Mm. It just doesn't care. And you know, we talk about Bitcoin. We talk about gold. Talk about resources. And this is what our next guest we're going to really talk about, you know, gold and resources. But, you know, those stimulus checks that went out to a lot of American Robin Hood traders or investors, they all threw it into Bitcoin. So, you know, what what what's happening right now is, is historical and it's setting up a trend. And that's why I think, you know, it'll be interesting to kind of hear where we're going in this regard from somebody who's been doing this for well over 40 or 50 years in the space.
1: This is, uh, this is going to be a good, uh, a good conversation. And uh, this
0: is how we learn and we get smarter. Exactly. So without further ado, guys, we're going to bring on our next guest. We hope you enjoy it. All right. So Nick, we've got a pretty uh, special guest uh, that's here with us today. Um, We're going to focus really on the resources, the metal space, and talk about the whole macro space. So Mm -hmm. without further ado, this gentleman began his career in the securities business in 1974 and has been principally involved in the Natural Resource Security Investments ever since. Um, And he's a leading resource investor specializing in mining, energy, water utilities, forest products, and agriculture, and has participated in hundreds of debt and equity transactions with private, pre-public, and public companies as well. He's also the founder of Global Resource Investment, president and CEO of Sprott USA Holdings, and a member of the Sprott Inc. Board of Directors. And he's been on many conferences, industry-related, numerous radio, TV, print, and online media outlets as well. Um, And he's been pretty active on LinkedIn recently, really putting himself out there, which has been awesome to see. So welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, Rick Rule.
1: Pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So uh, just to start off, Rick, because obviously, as you always say, story is really important before you get to the present. So the first thing I like to do is just I want to dig into a little bit of your history, how you got to the point where you got here, and really the philosophy, what built your philosophy to this point, how you got into gold, how you built your philosophy, because that helps to contextualize the way you think about the macro environments and how you allocate your capital.
2: I guess it's important, first of all, to understand that uh, as a you know, uh, cognitive adult, I came of age in the 1970s and to put that in context for your younger listeners, the 1970s dealt with the aftermath of um, the sort of guns and butter policy in the United States of the 1960s, which is to say, perhaps much like today, uh, we spent more than we had. Mm -hmm. And the consequence of that was uh, we either had to default, on our obligations, or we had to inflate away the net present value of those obligations. Uh, the upshot of that, and the upshot of the fact that society had underinvested in natural resources for three decades before the 1970s, is that I came of age uh, inadvertently in a spectacular bull market in all things natural resources, but particularly precious metals. In 1970, when I was at the ripe old age of, I don't know, 17 or 18, the gold price was an admittedly price controlled $35 an ounce.
1: Yeah, I remember that.
2: Uh, 11 years later, uh, the price of gold was $850 an ounce. It was a pretty stunning move. Silver was more dramatic. I think it was sort of a buck and a half and it cleaned up to 50 bucks. Uh, Oil, three bucks to 30 bucks. You get the point. Yeah. Um, I happened to have the good fortune to be interested in natural resources, uh, which was an astonishing bit of luck. Uh, other young people my age, I, I need to say with no hint of political correctness, mostly men because women didn't do financial services, mostly men, uh, that went into more conventional forms of investment and in finance, ran face first into an ugly bull market in equities beginning in 1968 beginning in 1982 a 14 year long bear market where every day that they came to work their clients net worth declined fractionally Hmm. uh, while i experienced exactly the other thing Hmm. now this was a blessing and a curse and it's important that people of your generation understand that blessings are often curses in the course of this ten-year bull market, where I was outperforming all my peers, uh, I decided that I wasn't the beneficiary of a bull market so much as the uh, as the possessor of extraordinary brain power. <laughs> Which is to say, like many young men that are successful, I became hubris uh, infected. And when that bull market ended, I found out just exactly how smart I was. Uh, I went from being broke at the beginning of the period to being a very wealthy young man, to having a net worth below zero in 1982. Um, Waking up with a sub-zero net worth when money is important to you uh, is a bit traumatic, uh, but having it happen early in your career when you can come back from it uh, makes the lesson useful. Uh, And in fact, while I intend never to return to that, I would say it's made me a much better investor, a much better speculator, and a much better advisor since. The philosophical underpinnings uh, of the way I operate have probably been with me my whole life. I don't know how one becomes a libertarian or an anarcho-capitalist. I know certainly in the latter part of the 1960s when, as a young American, I had to confront the war in Vietnam That was probably the last time I thought of any government as my friend. Uh, I didn't understand particularly, uh, to paraphrase Muhammad Ali, uh, what sort of quarrel I might have with the Viet Cong. Uh, I I certainly believe as Muhammad Ali said too, if the Viet Cong had invaded the United States, my feelings would have been much less ambivalent, but I didn't know what business we had going (laughs) (laughs) and attacking them. So I would say that the uh, investor I am today uh, and the advisor I am today really is a function of a a post-libertarian and anarcho-capitalist political philosophy uh, and an experienced investor in tangible assets, particularly natural resource style, uh, cyclical capital intensive businesses. So I hope that long-winded answer satisfies the question.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. And so basically with that, what I want to say was because just to give some context. So in terms of my case this year, when we started the podcast, we didn't see how the development of, well, I mean, you know, like we, we paid attention to the, to the environment of the investment landscape, but until 2020, I never truly understood how much of an impact the central banks would have on the economy or in the environment, I never understood how much politics would have that much of an impact. I knew geopolitical risk was a factor, but I never understood how deep of a factor it could become. So I started delving down the rabbit hole of uh, Adam Smith, uh, Milton Friedman, Thomas Sowell. And from there, it started opening my eyes to more macroeconomic principles. And from there, it's taught me a lot about how um, an ecosystem, even though it depends on an economic framework is heavily dependent on human dynamics and as you all often say the collectiveness seems to be very stupid and cause its own problems where there lays for in my eyes the problem of the economy because the people as a collective are economically ignorant they don't realize the power of their own dollar to dictate the outcome so and then that's where it kind of led down the rabbit hole of macroeconomics and macro foundations and then I led down to uh, silver and gold and that's when I started realizing there's a reason why certain people who talk about macro, who talk about politics, who look at the world over time, they start to fall in love with gold and silver because humans repeat their constant cycles. So it kind of, it, it, that, that it, like nobody talks about gold. We don't talk, our friends don't know what gold is. People say, well, where do you sell it? And then I like, it's the most easiest thing to buy. They ship it to your house and it's the easiest thing to liquidate. But yet nobody seems to care. Nobody seems to, where I can't do this, but they don't realize that there's a political factor that most people are completely ignorant to, especially my generation, which is a step beyond the ignorance that boomers seem to have. And that to me is another risk factor that I perceive as being a very negative trend for the overall economy. Because if my generation is a step further away from that comprehension, then that could, be more, that could be of a more negative detrimental factor for the overall outlook of the global economy, especially North America.
2: Well, I would dispute okay. that uh, your generation is uh, less intelligent than my generation. We're extremely competitive, us old baby boomers, even when the competition is stupidity. And we've been real achievers in the last 60 or 70 years in stupidity. Your generation needs to experience making the mistakes mm. that have formed people like myself. As an example, to become a more cautious investor or speculator, there's probably no better lesson than going broke. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I realize that everybody wants to get into the bar and pitch each other and drink without paying the cover charge, but that's not <laughs> how the bars work. Um, what's great about your generation is that you have better access to information, and better access mm. to technology, than any generation that's lived before you. Literally, almost all of the knowledge in the world is available to you. So you don't have to remember anything. All you have to know is how to access it from Google. What becomes important to you is how do you process information? and How do you form a paradigm? Uh, And mercifully, those are skills that are learned. They aren't learned quickly, but in fact, they are learned. The other advantage that your generation has is the emergence of a true peer-to-peer ecosystem. Information of all types, political information, current events, financial information. When I was a young person was delivered to you top down. Your daily newspaper gave it to you. The investment bank gave it to you. Your government gave it to you. Your school gave it to you. And you were expected to take it rote. But your generation doesn't have to do that. You get to talk to each other. Now, some of what you say is necessarily gibberish but that's so with every with, with every generation. The fact is that you have access to information, you have access to information storage, you have uh, access to a paradigm that's peer-to-peer, not delivered to you. There are responsibilities that come with that. You need to be able to sort that information and use it. And we'll discuss a little bit of that later. What's important, I think, for... Uh, many of the people in your generation who I've met and had the opportunity to discuss in calls like this is to begin to form your life thesis, if you will. Uh, you mentioned your own journey through macroeconomics. Y- you can make a lot of this efficient by reading two books. Economics and One Lesson for those who haven't read it is simply the easiest read With regards to how the economy really works, not how your professor uh, or your member of parliament would like it to work, but rather how it really works. And I think it's necessary reading for every generation, not merely millennials. And then you talk about individual action relative to the collection, the collective, pardon me. If you have gotten through economics in one lesson uh, relatively easy, or better yet, if you liked it. To me, the most impactful book of my life was Human Action by Von Mises. Uh, yes. uh, human volition, uh, human motivation, how humans act in their own self-interest and how humans act as collectives, as a society. Now, you're shaking your head. It, it, this book was written in very turgid English uh, and translated into more turgid, uh, pardon me, turgid German and, and translated into more turgid uh, English Uh, if you don't read the topic sentence, you'll understand the next paragraph. And if you didn't read that paragraph, you won't get the paragraph after. So it's hard work. But I would say in terms of understanding the way the the world works and the way that you and I fit into it, there's no better book that was ever written than human action. Reading just those two books, I think will give people in any generation, the ability to sort through the flotsam and jetsam uh, and the pearls of wisdom that are available in this world of distributed information and opinion.
1: It's um, I find that I find that because of the the simplicity that was given to my generation on the back of the older generation, that because of the lack of struggle, the lack of difficulty, we we seem to have a hard time to be able to contextualize our our history and our past, and we seem to forget that things don't happen. By pure coincidence but rather because human dynamics dictate the outcomes of a collectiveness at an individual and at a collective level and that's where the whole adam smith the invisible hand comes in ludwig van mises um and the things that milton freeman thomas Sowell talking. it's humans dictate the outcome and that's where the power of the dollar comes in and this is why i also became i believe a libertarian is because i don't feel that i am respected as an individual when I work and do what I gotta do for myself and those I care, but then you have the government that'll abuse and manipulate the ecosystem at its whim. And that, I, I, I kind of correlated to like a black hole where the moment you give your money to the government, it kind of dissipates and evaporates and often not really does not do any good, uh, does not provide any good collective outcome, but rather a beneficial outcome for a select few.
2: I have four responses to that, I think. Uh, The first is, yes, uh, your generation was born into the most benign social and economic climate that has ever existed. And my suspicion is, unfortunately, that the world will revert to Mm mean, which means that the next 10 years or 20 years will be somewhat less generous than the last 10 or 20 have been. But that's okay. You'll get through it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the generation before mine had some challenges too, things like the Great Depression and World War II um the second is that despite all of the problems that we face uh, history including current history has shown that individual initiative and individual cooperation is so powerful that we generate so much wealth so much benefit as individuals that we seem to be able to amortize and afford our collective stupidity hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know you You put six smart kids together in a garage in Sunnyvale, California, and out pops Google, Uh, something that changes the way the world lives. Uh, And Google generates so much utility that neither Washington DC nor Sacramento, despite their best efforts, can wreck it. Uh, Enormously resilient. The third thing that I would say is that there's a real futility to pessimism. the ascent of man exists, and I say man in a politically correct fashion, what I mean is the ascent of humankind uh, is continuing and will continue. The ability of people to use technology and use other things to defend themselves individually and even as a voluntary society uh, outpaces their collective stupidity with, with the caveat that unfortunately, technology has allowed us to kill each other extraordinarily efficiently uh, if we're we're not uh, careful about how things work. And the fourth thing I would say uh, is that although you are distressed by the relatively small proportion of your generation who shares your libertarian thought, When I was your age, or maybe a little earlier, uh, I couldn't spell libertarian. (laughs) Uh, And now as an example, libertarian youth groups like Students for Liberty have 160,000 members worldwide. I conduct Skype seminars with young libertarians in Sri Lanka, Rwanda, Syria, uh, this in a world of 50 years after a young man named Rick Rule became cognizant and couldn't spell libertarian. So in that regard, I think that uh, our way of thinking is gaining ground very rapidly, not rapidly enough for you or for me. <laughs> I look at this as grounds for optimism. I guess the fifth mm-hmm. thing that I would like to say is don't let your philosophy become an excuse to fail. So many times I've been in investment seminars Canadians blame their portfolio shortcomings on Trudeau or uh, Americans on Trump. The truth is Trudeau doesn't know who you are and Trump doesn't know who I am. Uh, And so don't let those morons uh, in Ottawa or Washington give you an excuse to fail.
0: I think that's really interesting, too, because this is the idea. Nick and I were talking about this, too, is there's this idea that's being pushed right now that... um, you know, like you had just said, like, Oh, it's their fault that I can't do something. Right. And what I like to say is like, stop being a victim. Right. And we've had, you know, we've had many guests on here and that's one of the things that we talk about. And, you know, I find that with our generation, that's being amplified now because you've got all these mediums, you've got all these media outlets just pushing, you know, propaganda or, you know, whatever, whatever we want to call it, but it's, it's, it's creating this idea that, it's okay to blame my problems on other people. And you just mentioned something really interesting, which is like, try not to fail. But when you were going through the process of discovering, like you said, your life thesis, like were there failures along the way? And then like, when you had a failure, did you accept responsibility and say, this is all my fault?
2: I, I would have described going from being a very young, a very wealthy young man to having a negative net worth. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, sadly for me, uh, I knew the author of that failure. Uh, I looked at him in the mirror when I combed my hair and brushed my teeth. That was, of course, back in the days when I had hair to comb. Uh, So, yes, yeah, I would say that I understood very well that I was the author of my own failure. And I think a lot of people, despite the fact that they may blame others, uh, when they're alone with themselves, uh, they have a better understanding than they might let on uh, as to their failure. Now, maybe that belief is because i've you know i've hung out with entrepreneurs and stuff like that most of my life maybe i've dealt with a small enough slice of society that my optimism with regard to the rest of society is misplaced but when i examine your statement in context when you talk about as an example the pervasiveness of the media message that ignores you guys i mean you guys aren't cbc you aren't nbc But the number of people that you ultimately reach and the nature of the message that you dispense uh, isn't their business and isn't under their control uh, to the extent uh, that the mainstream media distributes paradigm message and news that's unacceptable to a certain audience and you fill that niche. Uh, That process by its very self benefits both you and society simultaneously and again is a cause for optimism i i look at some of the nonsense that i see in social media mm-hmm. and i'm delighted to be able to see that nonsense because I agree. That there's a forum for the good the bad and the ugly
1: yes you can't I, see the light without the dark you can't light cannot exist without darkness so you have to you get to see both sides That didn't
2: exist when I was a kid. You got your information top down. The teacher taught you what you were expected to listen. You were supposed to regurgitate it on an exam. Uh, Assuming you got through that, you had to read the paper, which was the same process. Then the government told you what to think and who to kill. Uh, And beyond that, the investment banks gave you advice as to what to buy and sell. Uh, This whole idea of distributed knowledge and distributed information is tremendously important.
1: Okay. So to segue into, well, the premise of gold and natural resources, I want to read you a little, like um, a little philosophical text that I had written in one of my uh, blog pieces after really di- diving deep into gold and what gold is and the history, the 6,000 years of history. So I just, I want to start off with that, see what you think of it. And then I wanted to go deeper into gold and natural resources. So, to start off. Now, having established that rationale, respecting natural law, if we observed that relationship gold played with humanity, we see a positive correlation. Let's take that further now. If that has always been humanity's most reliable form of exchange that provided sustainable value until the mid 20th century of our globalized expansion, then why is any human trying to apply their personal desire of altering that very truth? Seems like ego rather than anything else another old tale of history. Gold has been loved, desired, utilized across time in correlation with our expansion. That makes it incredibly reliable by simply backtesting our history. It also makes it a mean average baseline off which humanity's economic expansion could occur. It provides a constant baseline off which natural wealth can truly expand. This is a key dynamic relationship towards having a viable, flexible, and sustainable expanding economy. Sure sounds a lot like what a a rational mind would incorporate into their framework to ensure optimal output would seem rational for a trusting and functional global economy with so many dynamic variables, such as all the social problems it has to trust the monetary framework that has pierced through time alongside us. Every time people deviate from it, it was, in my opinion, heavily from the centralized personal interest of a select few. Greed to obtain something more for the benefit of, of the few at any cost. Human suffering must often then, uh, sorry, human suffering most often than not appears to be that cost that humanity keeps trying to teach.
2: Uh, there's too much in there to respond to all of it,
1: um, so I'll just pick yeah. part. Yeah, yeah, whatever, just in terms of the philosophy of where gold came to and where you see gold in the necessity of our civilization.
2: I think it's important to note, and I don't really know why, uh, that gold emerged almost spontaneously in cultures that if they had contact with each other, we don't know about Mesoamerica, Eurasia, South Asia, um, East Asia, And it has been, as you suggest, for at least 6,000 years, simultaneously a store of value and a medium of exchange. For those who care, uh, Aristotle listed the reasons why gold makes great money, uh, among other things, consistency, malleability, durability, utility. Um, And for whatever reason, uh, as you suggest, unlike most other mediums of exchange, gold is a store of value. It's in fact, honest money. And as you also suggest, the collective uh, doesn't like um, non-debasable, non-manipulable stores of value. One thing we see in organized societies of the type that are prevalent today, which is to say democracies, and I'm not necessarily anti-democratic, but one of the features of a democracy is an ongoing war on savers by spenders savers being scarce and spenders being numerous. (laughs) The spenders, of course, will always vote to plunder the savers, that's the way the world works. And the consequence of that is that if they can't plunder them directly, they plunder them indirectly, they plunder them by inflation, they plunder them by debt and deficits. One of the best examples that we can make of this in real time for your generation are precisely these debt and deficits. If we think about them for what they are, they're a transfer of wealth. My generation who, who voted ourselves all these wonderful entitlements and benefits consume more than we produce, and we leave you all the bill. Now, part of me thinks this is fairly funny. You know, I'll be, I'll be out of here probably before the bill is due. But if I were <laughs> you, I wouldn't think it was funny. Uh, and gold traditionally has been a way that savers can defend themselves by spender, from spenders. Because it can't be inflated away. And it isn't a promise to pay. A dollar really is a floating abstraction. It isn't payment, it's a, a promise to pay. And it's a promise, as many societies, Argentina as an example, have shown, that can be renounced. Gold isn't a promise to pay, it's a simple payment. So, to the extent that you store your savings, your savings being the surplus of the utility that you generated relative to the surplus that you consumed in a store of value and a medium of exchange that other people don't control. What in effect you are doing is defending yourself and yours from people who would attempt advertently or inadvertently to harm you. Now, I'm not one that would like to see a gold monolith Uh, I'm a consumer of currencies and I would like to see many mediums of exchange compete to offer me utility gold being one of them. Uh, Gold for various reasons would probably be uh, in a very, very, very competitive world, uh, the way that I stored most of my liquidity, but I wouldn't want to convey my wishes on others, I would be delighted if through technology, some other mediums of exchange came along that made gold obsolete. I don't see that happening in my lifetime, or in fact, in your lifetime. Um, What I think is uh, unfortunate that you cover in that tome is the non-voluntaristic nature of the society that people would ask us to live in. Uh, A circumstance where you and I voluntarily exchange utility, where there are contracts that are prescribed merely between yourself and myself, is a much healthier society than one that evolves laws and codes that aren't necessarily so much to govern peaceful voluntary exchange between individuals, but rather to determine outcomes and gold has been a fairly good way of excusing yourself from outcomes dictated by society that aren't consistent with the outcomes that you desire.
1: It's uh, the way I would it's it's, it's it's a hedge against the stupidity of the collectiveness.
2: Well, I wouldn't,
1: I mean, yes, I get that. And the, the, stu-
2: the collective <laughs> is stupid. The, the collective is nowhere as stupid as I would wish. Um, because the collective has done things like World War II, uh, there is a certain pernicious and ugly wisdom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I you, you touched on something too, the desire, right? Um, that's very interesting because we're in the middle of probably the craziness of society that we're in. And you've got an asset that is the best performing asset year to date, we'll say, um, that being Bitcoin um, and you know, I, I feel like right now it's just, people are buying it to satisfy their desire. It's an E I think with, it's more without, of an ego
1: in the, without,
0: uh, without actually understanding, okay, what is really happening behind the scenes? So like, what do you say to people, millennials, even Gen Z's, even people your age who might not necessarily understand the phenomenon that's going on, but like, how do you keep a balanced tone in this environment?
2: Well, I begin by saying I'm an inadvertent ludite. There are certain things about Bitcoin that I don't comment on because I don't understand it either. Hmm. Um, I understand the medium of exchange part of it. uh, And the anarcho-capitalist in me is delighted beyond delighted to have a a peer-to-peer currency where you don't have to trust a government and you don't have to trust the counterparty. You just have to trust the market. Uh, I love that. Uh, I love the effectively frictionless nature of the medium of exchange. Um, the things that mitigates, mitigate against Bitcoin for me, and by the way, I'm pro-Bitcoin mm. uh, as a technology and as a social instrument. Uh, the things that mitigate uh, against Bitcoin for me are, first of all, that its attribute that speculators seem to like the most, which is to say its volatility, Mm -hmm. goes a long way to obviating its utility as a medium of exchange. Unless you live your whole life denominated in Bitcoin, uh, if you go to buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks, you don't know how much you paid, and Starbucks doesn't know how much they got, because it's so volatile. I also understand, too, that the um, store of value part of Bitcoin has to do with the network effect. Uh, and as the, uh, liquidity in Bitcoin becomes larger and larger relative to its population relative to its store, which is to say, uh, the network effect creates its own utility. I get that in the abstract. Uh, what I like about gold as a store of value is simply it's been a store of value for a very long time. And it's useful in some measure other than as a medium of exchange. It's been used in jewelry, it's been used in electronics, it's been used in religious iconography. Bitcoin has been used in Bitcoin. Uh, I don't happen to believe that Bitcoin is any particular danger to gold. I think they're complementary asset classes except on the very margin. Uh, the upside volatility in Bitcoin uh, has maybe taken off the, uh, I was going to say ragged, maybe I mean the rabbit edge uh, of some uh, Robinhood oriented gold bugs. And that's fine. The the truth is that gold's market share relative to other asset classes is so small that if Bitcoin nibbles around the edges, it won't matter much uh,
1: because there's lots of room for both relative to other asset classes. Do you think, so these are two negative factors that, That I think could occur that, well, one, it's the fact that when the debt crisis does become a massive problem, we have pension, we have centralized political power, we have all kinds of welfare states, we have healthcare, we have all these things that are centralized. It only benefits the few, never the collective. So then you get the debt cycles, you get the inflation, you get the abuse of the monetary system. So, in the context moving forward, if the debt were to collapse, it is very much a possibility that Bitcoin could be correlated as a risk asset in the sense that much of the much debt could have been taken on by millennials. Uh, at zero interest rate, people are remortgaging their houses and they're going piling all in on Bitcoin. So is it, is it fair enough to assume that there is definitely a massive risk factor that when the debt does come down, it could correlate heavily with the debt collapse?
2: I think that's true with all asset classes. Okay. Uh, I don't want to focus on Bitcoin with regards to that. I've been through a, a couple periods in my life where social trust disappeared and there were liquidity crises. Uh, in, in that circumstance, the sell decision isn't made by the owner, it's made by the margin clerk. Uh, and the margin clerk sells wherever there's a bid. Uh, if you have a choice between maintaining your Bitcoin account or feeding your family, you're gonna default in most cases to feeding your family. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that Bitcoin is um, more correlated more correlated to the risks associated with a credit default than other asset classes. Uh, I also don't think that your risk in terms of debt as a millennial is as much of your making as it is of mine. Uh, If you look at your access to debt, your access to consumer credit, uh, you don't have the ability as a private party to do anywhere near as much damage to you as I'm going to do. Uh, (laughs) When you look at the United States, uh, $26 trillion in on-balance sheet liabilities at the federal level, $18 billion net, uh, or $120 trillion in entitlements, Hmm. you add state and local debt on top of that, and you add underfunded pensions on top of that, Uh, your generation has debts that most of you don't know you have. talking even to someone my age in the context of a trillion results in people's eyes glazing over because they don't know what a trillion is. Um, and I, it'll be interesting to see how we resolve this debt problem. Your politicians and mine say in one sense that the debt doesn't matter because we owe it to each other. Yeah. strictly well, speaking, true. The spenders owe it to the savers the spenders being more numerous than the savers, uh, when the bill comes due, uh, there's gonna be some extraordinary difficulties. And I guess we deal with it one of three ways. Um, We have a good old fashioned default Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and that could happen two ways. That could happen when you two go to the ballot box and say, hey, Rick, you voted yourself all these benefits, you pay for them, we're not gonna, (laughs) you know? That social, the social security, that Medicare, that Medicaid, you know, screw you. Strong letter to follow, <laughs> uh, or a formal default where the government says, "Yeah, I know we promised, but we're not going to pay." Or you could have the dishonest default, which is to say, you attack the numerator, you depreciate the net present value of the operate, uh, uh, of the obligation by depreciating the currency, or you do what we sort of succeeded in doing in part of the decade of the 80s and part of the decade of the 90s, which is to say that you limit the growth of government debt to a number that's lower than GDP growth and try and grow your way out from under it. Uh, I don't think that there's much appetite in the world for taking the type of pill that the United States took in 1981 with Paul Volcker raising the interest rate to 18% um but there certainly is a, a way out of this problem short of default it's just it's going to be very 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 unpleasant for the majority of citizens and the majority of voters
1: is there um is there a scenario where as Jim Rickards talks about oftentimes, where he mentions um, in order to solve a lot of the debt problem you would have to automatically like kind of did with it back then in the seventies where they pinned gold at the price of $35. But in this environment going forward with the amount of debt, you would have to automatically inflate the price of gold to justify the debt loads. So gold could go to five, 10,000, $15,000. Is that a, is that a plausible scenario?
2: Sure. I mean, I don't think that you have to automatically reprice gold. Um, I, I think the market will do it for you. Okay. <clears throat> um, a, a greater danger, uh, would be, I think the collective trying to outlaw private gold ownership, mm. private gold ownership being a form of protection that the savers have from the spenders and the spenders don't particularly want to be defended against.
1: Um, okay. So with that said, then here's, um, so in obviously because there's a lot of people that normally when they want to get exposure to gold, they'll go straight to, um, iShares or the go to GLD, it's a conversation a lot of people don't understand when I say it's paper, this is a paper traded, mostly a paper traded type of fund. And then you have things like, for example, Sprott, where Sprott is an actual trust that holds real metals. In, in the context of millennials, can you provide uh, an explanation that, th- that shows the difference between what traditional like uh, iShares does versus what Sprott does when it comes to metals sure. to better allocate their capital?
2: There's a few ways to own metals, many ways. Physical ownership, where you actually have it. Not a bad thing to do. Uh, It's inconvenient, by the way. Uh, And many of your generation, at least the part of your generation that's been influenced by people like me, uh, like having control of their own physical precious metals because they don't want to trust other people. Unfortunately, one answer that's become increasingly popular is that people try to store that themselves at home. I laughingly call it midnight gardening. Uh, And that exposes you to a different set of risks, particularly if you tell other people that you're engaged in midnight gardening. So I always ask people if they're going to hold physical precious metals, that they uh, hold it uh, with some trusted intermediary. Um, Could be a bank, you know, in a safe deposit box, it could be uh, a a vault provided that uh, you understand something about the solvency of the vault owner. A different way is as you suggest, iShares into ETFs. Um, this is extremely convenient. It's extremely cheap. It's extremely liquid. You can buy it and sell it with the click of a mouse. Uh, there aren't the huge premiums to buy and sell and store that you have with physical gold and hence it's very popular. There are two reasons why people don't hold their gold. Perhaps three reasons why people don't hold their gold. Some people don't hold their gold uh, in the form of an ETF. The first is, as you suggest, it's a paper asset, and to the extent that there was a real breakdown in confidence and the exchange is halted for a while, <laughs> mm, you're cold. At precisely the time that you needed the liquidity from it, it would be unavailable to you. Okay. The second is, and I'm less concerned about this, frankly, than some of my friends. Um, <clears throat> the ETFs have such dramatic pinches and swells in net asset value, even day by day, that they're forced to be very large buyers and very large sellers of gold on a day by day basis. And what that means is that if you had a period of real volatility that was followed or concurrent uh, with a liquidity crisis, what you might find is that some of the assets of your ETF rather than being in gold were in delivery receipts or deposit receipts which is to say that your ETF would become the unsecured creditor of a counterparty that couldn't deliver uh, in financial parlance, that would piss you off, you know? Uh, the third advantage of the trust form of ownership, which is what Sprout's holdings are centered on, is that in the United States, at least uh, capital gains, if any, incurred in selling the trust are taxed at the capital gains rate. while physical gold uh, or surrogates from physical gold and the IRS regards the ETF as a surrogate for gold uh, are taxed at the collectibles rate, which is to say at a higher rate. So we have chosen for all of those reasons to offer our clients uh, certificated trust receipts traded on the New York Stock Exchange backed by physical gold stored at the Royal Canadian Mint. Uh, I understand that that means we're trusting a government. Uh, We say the counterpart to that is that our security is provided by NATO, which is somewhat more robust than midnight gardening.
0: One of the things that we've seen too this year is just um, chaos, absolute chaos. And I was watching gold yesterday. And um, when the events happened that we saw, um, in Washington, and there was a spike in gold and there was a split second too, where Bitcoin actually dropped $2,000. And in my mind, and this is what what Nick was talking about, you've got a situation where Bitcoin is still more of a risk on asset. Can we confirm that gold long-term is a safe haven based on what you've seen? And then even based on what Potential other chaoses are ahead because I, Nick, and I also believe, and I'm sure you can attest to this. Um, there's probably going to be another crisis that most people who don't understand how finance and economics work are not going to be pre- prepared for.
2: Gold has two utilities, and, and the type of foolishness that we saw yesterday and today uh, doesn't really factor into things, although it's dramatic. Gold is very useful, as an example, if you need to exit and need to take wealth with you. When I look at the clients of Sprott, who I haven't had to explain much to about gold, they are often uh, either themselves experienced in real turbulence, Uh, you know, I don't mean a couple of rednecks to them in the White House. Uh, I mean, things like Vietnamese boat people uh, or the children of Jews who suffered through the Holocaust. Um, gold has real utility in circumstances that are really, truly life-threatening and chaotic. The other utility of gold is simply defending yourself against negative interest rates, uh, which is much, much, much less dramatic. But when I look at the price moves in gold that have occurred over my lifetime, I'm not talking about intraday moves, which don't matter much to me. You know, I'm sort of post-drama, um, what has really been the determinant of the gold price has been faith or lack of faith in the efficacy of savings products. Negative real interest rates are not a force of nature. The idea that you would pay somebody to store and use your wealth and defer consumption is stupid. It's an artificial construct set up to benefit the collective rather than to benefit the general the, uh, generator of that wealth. Uh, And gold's real utility goes there. Now, gold sometimes moves in the context of, you know, riots or, you know, what I call ancillary drama. Uh, But I wouldn't look to that as being the real reason for real moves in gold negative real interest rates and the depreciation of the currency and the erosion of the purchasing power of one's savings are the reasons for real moves in gold absent circumstances like the Holocaust.
0: Interesting. That's very interesting. Um, I guess for millennials too, now you've got a situation where like the two books that you said to read, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What advice do you have for the millennials right now who are just getting started with investing? And maybe you could touch base on the Robinhood people because one of the things that scares me the most too is just the fact that, you know, you've got companies like Tesla that are just continuing to go up and all these Robinhood kids are making, you know, they think they're making a lot of money and then they go back and then you have a flashback of a young Rick Rule when he had negative net worth, right? Uh, so what, what is your advice to those, those people who are being reckless and just don't understand really what's going on?
2: Well, that's part of, uh, growing up, uh, experiencing the part bad part of being a young man, uh, is an abundance of testosterone, uh, and not quite so much serotonin, you know, uh, that's something that corrects with age. Uh, it, it's, patience is interesting. It's odd that as I have less time on earth, uh, I become more patient, <laughs> I have seen that while I would like something to happen within 90 days, the fact that I would like it to happen is absolutely irrelevant. Uh, I have to pay attention to what I can have, not what I want. And what you find with regards to investments, well, speculations first. Uh, Speculation, you are uh, betting, if you will, on the possibility rather than the probability of an unanswered question of some piece of information that comes in and solidifies the market's knowledge of the value of a technology or an asset. Uh, and answering an unanswered question can take 18 months or 24 months or 60 months. And the idea that uh, you think that the appropriate time to hold a speculative stock where the value is added in 18 to 60 months, if you think that the time the appropriate time to hold that stock is a week Uh, Over time, you will certainly become my victim. I will end up with your money uh, because you will make more mistakes than I do. (laughs) With regards to investment, uh, again, the the most important thing to remember is compound interest. The idea that a really superb company can earn, oh God, let's say, you know, 15% uh, return on capital and can reinvest that 15% margin in the same business and generate a compound 15%, uh, there's absolutely nothing in the world like that. What the Robin Hood people haven't learned and what I didn't know at that point in time was, to quote Warren Buffett, the ideal holding period is forever. Uh, If you have done a good enough job with your investments, remember that when you sell something, even for a profit, you run a very real risk of taking smart money and making it stupid where you put it back. The third thing I would say, and probably the most important uh, to the Robin Hood generation is that when you're young and particularly young and lazy, uh, there's a a slavish devotion of price, which is to say the share price. Mm -hmm. Having price information is useless if you don't have an opinion as to value. Money is made on the delta between price and value. If something is you think worth $10, uh, and if you think that uh, trends in motion within the company can cause it in two years to be worth $20, and you can buy it for six and a half or $7 today, that's very useful. But in the absence of having an opinion as to value and the direction of value, the price information is absolutely useless. It has no utility whatsoever.
1: Is that where you would say that story must always meet price action? You need a combination of both. You can never look at just that price because price alone does not tell you the story behind it. And then that's where I think that there's a. I, I see, think this is where. Tells them, I think maybe price is all story. It's all well, that's what I'm saying though. I mean it by my my point was simply that most of the time, especially as you're younger and you're making mistakes, when you look at the price, you you cannot contextualize the price. You just see the price, and there goes the 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 price action greed. They just want profit short term because they're unable to see the long-term output of whatever the price might be showing in front of you or the downside risk. You used a wonderful term there, want.
2: And the sooner that you disabuse yourself from the sense that what you want matters, uh, the better investor you're going to become. It isn't a function of what you want. It's a question of what you can have and what you're willing to do to get there. Uh, Let's look at two more books uh, while we're on this topic. The first would be The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham, uh, which is the best investment book ever written relative to the effort required to read it. Uh, partly because it's it's also a wonderful book. When, I'll use the presumptive close, when your listeners have read The Intelligent Investor, the next book that they should read if The Intelligent Investor was either easy or pleasant for them would be Securities Analysis, which is simply put the best investment book ever written. If your listeners and readers will read those two books, not just buy them, I've caused thousands of people to buy these books, and many of them have sat unread in bedstands. Uh, if your listeners will read these books and employ the lessons in these books, your listeners will absolutely positively get rich, irrespective of the stupidity of
1: government. <laughs> That's adopting a sustainable framework through which. An investor can penetrate, like kind of like gold, you know, you want to penetrate time, you want to allow your capital to sustain its right. life course. So, you know, it's I again, from what macro has started to teach me, what things like gold has taught me f- listening to gentlemen like you and Jim Rickards and Peter Schiff and the list goes on and on. It's there's an issue with the sense that people do not have a framework that is sustainable, and that greed and that mm-hmm. stupidity reflects on the collective level and it fuels the debt load. It fuels the spender. It fuels the inflation. It fuels things based on their sensation to feel and want things in the short term. And that short-term desire has a long-term consequence. And that to me, you know, it's where I find it's it's hard for me to see the optimism when I see a lot of negative trends and behaviors in a generation that, especially my generation, that doesn't want to accept the past or doesn't want to contextualize the history and wants to create a future that they themselves want to create. So for me, that, that ego scares me a little because as history teaches us with gold is every time a centralized power chooses to forego uh, the way things work because they want to benefit the select few they tend to create a bust or a collapse in their economy or their civilization, and it always starts from the top. So if my generation has this behavior and has this mindset, it worries me a little bit that it'll it'll survive because we'll keep being protected by the older generation until we've automatically then from zero to hero, we've inherited this whole debt burden that we have no idea how to even comprehend it, contextualize it, look at it, analyze, optimize it, dissect it is in it there's you know what i mean so it's my generation that's my fear it really is that it's i don't think we're ready to handle what's coming our way we weren't either okay Uh, fair enough (laughs) i
2: i I wouldn't personalize it too much in a generational sense uh after all the mess that you're inheriting wasn't caused by yourself but was rather caused by us um My suspicion is that uh, life circumstances faced by your generation will give them uh, the same style of lessons that my own life gave me. Those 10 years I described, where I went from zero to hero to zero, uh, taught me a a lot about the way the world works, uh, and the way that I had to work uh, in order to get along within the world. I, I would say, that young people listening to this lecture, or whatever it is that we've had this discussion, uh, the most important thing that they should take out of it would be to read those four books. Uh, If you read those four books, what you will realize, uh, to paraphrase the old quote, is just because all of those about you are losing their heads, there's no particular reason for you to lose yours. Uh, Losing one's head is mostly optional. uh, And people of any age will find that their very, very, very worst wounds are self-inflicted. The idea, as an example, that you should look only at the mistakes and disadvantages associated with your generation, rather than uh, looking at at the opportunities and the level of education that you have, is a mistake. Uh, Approaching the future with fear, as opposed to respect, is a mistake too. Uh, Investing in yourself, investing in the audience that you're cultivating um, with this broadcast series, investing in your own education and knowledge is almost a guarantee uh, that you, despite whatever odds are thrown against you, are going to succeed. The other problem with uh, futility is that if you expect the worst, those goals are very easy to achieve. Uh, it becomes a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, um, bear markets, which everybody fears, uh, are wonderful things. Because what they really are is sales. If you look at a circumstance where you think a company is worth $10 a share, but the problem is it's selling for 12. If that same company falls to $3.50 a share and nothing else changes, that's a really good thing. It's odd that as sentient human beings, when we look at sales on consumer goods, we think it's a good thing. <laughs> this time of year, if you're going out to you know, to find yourself a coat or something like that, and you see a coat that would be a reasonable value at $200, but it's on sale at hundred dollars, you're thrilled. Well, for the merchant, that's a bear market, okay? Uh, and a circumstance which you will certainly face in the next 10 years, I think, where the general level of equities pricing, at least for a while, falls by 50% or 60%, <clears throat> while it's unpleasant for the inventory that you have in place, uh, presents a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous opportunity for you. you. You just need to get yourself in the circumstance where you come to view investment goods the same way that you regard physical goods.
1: Is there, is there a possibility that Japan becomes a reflection of what could become here? in the sense that the youth have become marginalized, Uh, they can't move out, they can't afford most assets, Um, they're depressed, they mostly live at home because they can't find jobs. And I find that that could become a possibility in terms of marginalizing the future economy, that that could become a negative trend.
2: Well, I certainly hope not. Um, I think that's up to the individual youth. Uh, I know that One of the things that's happened in some measures of Japanese society is that it's become so regimented uh, that people aren't willing to be entrepreneurs. Uh, While that's bad for Japanese society, it's wonderful (laughs) for Japanese entrepreneurs. (laughs) If you look as an example at the Ascent of SoftBank and other entrepreneurial run uh, Japanese companies there is still tremendous savings within the Japanese society. There seems to be uh, <clears throat> some trends in motion, and I'm not a political scientist, I can't say why they are, but I, I would suggest they're due to the regimented nature of Japanese society, uh, that uh, they have chosen to cure uh, the disease of government control with poison. Uh, with more government control, but I'm editorializing. Uh, I would suggest that in every circumstance, rather than looking for the problem, identify the problem, certainly, uh, and try and steer yourself clear of it. Uh, but think through to the opportunity that might exist for you in the problem.
1: Uh, well, or that's where the gold comes in.
2: Uh, gold in your own education. Mm-hmm, of course. There's a whole bunch of ways to get ahead. You guys might build uh, an online media channel with four or 500,000 viewers. Uh, in which case, what happens is that gold becomes to you a surplus store of value. Uh, yes, you'd make some money on the gold, but you'd make much more money <laughs> on your media channel. Uh, d- yes, gold is a store of value, but that isn't the only thing that you're gonna do with
0: your life. Hmm. Right now... you have... Yeah, go ahead. Go. Go ahead, Nick.
1: No, I was just going to say, is there, is, there, is, there, is there particular things in history that's always stood out to you that has sticked with you throughout your life that really tells in a simple little story, a, a tale, a lesson that, that people can take with them? Because I know history teaches a lot, but someone as, is as there one, one that, you,
0: that stands out, basically. Yeah,
1: something that stick with you because you clearly, I, like, I watched the gold documentary that you made with um, Real Vision. Mm-hmm. where it was a two-part series. And, you know, I, I very much enjoyed that, too, where you had a bunch of people talking about little philosophical things or historical moments that have, that have stood out to them.
2: I think, I think the most important lesson of history is the ascent of man. Uh, think about how uh, people your age would have felt in 1936 or 1937. They'd been through the great depression. They couldn't get drunk because there was prohibition. And then comes world war <laughs> two.
0: Like no time to adapt. You just got to go. Right, down. you know, we think we got problems. Yeah.
2: Um, you need to understand the problems but you need not to be governed by the no problem. problem. You need not to become a problem yourself. I remember I-, I wasn't there but I remember when Ayn Rand was a guest at the New Orleans Investment Conference in 1980 and she was entertaining questions from the the floor. And, you know, she'd spoken on the virtue of selfishness or, you know, some sort of self-reliance topic. Somebody from the audience said, well, what of the poor? And she said, well, first of all, don't compete with them. Don't become them. (laughs) Uh, The poor get pulled ahead by your success, not by their failure. And I think the lesson of history is precisely that. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of the Italian social scientist Pareto. Um, His stuff is worth reading. Uh, Pareto is the codifier in social science of what's popularly known as the 80-20 rule. Yes, suggests that in any given utility, uh, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the population. Uh, There's Few more things that are important to know about this. First of all, performance dispersal curves are bell-shaped, which is to say in any given task, uh, 20% of the population, a different 20% of the population creates 80% of the aggravation too. So your first challenge in any given population base in any given task is to, to associate with the good 20, not the bad 20. The second thing is that in a large population base, which is to say a large utility, like say a market, you can run those lips, those 20s through the same performance dispersal curve and they'll conformably align. Uh, Which means that if 20% do 80%, then 20 of the 20 do 80 of the 80, or 4% of the population base contributes 65% of the utility. Uh, So part of your life really is uh, determining Uh, the task that you're interested in and associating yourself with the first or second standard deviation of achievers. What it means on a societal level is that the um, beneficial activities of eight tenths of one percent of the population at the third generation, the third standard deviation can generate 40 percent of the utility, which is to say a few good people can overcome a whole roomful of idiots, <laughs> which is a good thing because roomfuls of idiots are you know fairly commonplace. Uh, <laughs> but the idea that you allow your expectation of the future to be governed by your observation of the idiots is a mistake. If you associate with the idiots, it says something about you, uh, and you need in every circumstance. It's also important to understand that. Uh, different people uh, inhabit different realms so you can be por- part of the good 4% in one part of your life and unfortunately be part of the bad 20% in a different part of your life and so it's important to sort through these performance dispersal curve groups by function
0: it's it's pretty interesting that you bring that up because I, before the year ended I'm not really big into new year's resolutions I think they're they don't, they don't work. I think it, what, what you said is you need a life thesis and that's, Mm. what's going to continue to keep you going. So I don't do new year's resolutions, but the one thing I did, uh, before the end of the year was I did an internal audit. I, I spent a lot of time looking at, you know, the social medias that I was posting, the, my goals that I was doing, where I was at and stuff like that. And you know what, there's so much garbage on social media that I just said, like, How could you say that, Daniel? Or you know, or like you know, friends friends of mine were saying like this guy's crazy, and I was just like, you know what, you're right. And that's a perfect (laughs) example of something where you know I might not be part of the you know part of the group of idiots in that situation, but it's also an important piece as an individual for you to kind of look back and say, okay, I did this forget it, let's be better at this point in time. But you brought it from a very analytical perspective, which is like, use it as a function as a result of that. So I found that really interesting. Uh, Moving forward in this new world or this new society that we're moving into where you've got people talking about equality for all or equitable income and stuff like that. Um, My parents came from a communist country. Um, So they have lived through privilege what we're living in Quebec right now, Nick and uh, I in Montreal. It's very similar. They, the, the, yeah,
1: the they just announced a curfew here in Montreal for one month where if you step outside of your house for after eight o'clock and you're caught by the police, you have to have a reason or else you can get fined.
0: So, so, so here's, here's my question for you, Rick. Um, when you look at these events that have been happening, particularly with the pandemic. Um, what is, there's no right or wrong answer, but what is your view sort of on how it should be handled and how should small businesses move forward uh, to really be able to come out of this thing prosperous or at least better than they, they, they were when this entire thing started?
2: I believe in volition, in freedom. I'm a 68-year-old uh, with uh, an immunodeficient problem. Uh, So I'm paying attention. I'm not paying attention because the governor of my state says that I should pay attention. I'm paying attention um, because I think it's prudent for me. I think it's my personal decision. Uh, I would prefer a circumstance where decisions like this were private. I would prefer a circumstance where if I was an insurer, I said to my insureds, if I thought that vaccines were efficacious, feel free not to get a vaccine, just understand your insurance is null and void because I'm not going to take that risk. <laughs> uh, I think a small business owner should be willing to say people with masks are welcome, people without masks aren't welcome, or otherwise, as they see fit. But most people in the world want to be protected, including protected from themselves. So even though I would prefer that circumstance, I realize that you know, this is more of an intellectual discussion. In terms of small businesses coming out of this, okay, uh, the time for that discussion was three years ago. Uh, One makes oneself anti-fragile by saving. Uh, To the extent that you, I mean, to the extent that you haven't done that, uh, you know, it it would take a really, really, really strange set of circumstances in my life to alter almost any part of it, because after that experience, going broke as a young man, uh, I maintained and do maintain a lot of liquidity. If you look at Sprott as an example, um, you know, we obviously did tremendously well in the market from 2000 to 2011. Uh, We became synonymous for precious metals The index that we're measured against, which is the Toronto Stock Exchange Junior Resource Index, fell 88% in nominal terms and more like 90% in real terms in the period 2011 uh, to 2018. Uh, Building a business that is robust enough that it can take a 90% decline in its product (laughs) is a pretty robust business, but we did it. Uh, and what's interesting is that the uh, extraordinary good fortune that we're enjoying now really is a consequence of how hard we work during the bear market. Uh, I guess if there was a fifth book to talk about, it would be Anti-Fragile by Taleb. Uh, society as a whole doesn't seem to have an interest in being anti-fragile, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't. Uh, so the small businesses that you talk about uh, should have been concerned about their solvency two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. Uh, similarly, the response to the COVID-19 virus, uh, irrespective of who you are, is one where you take the government response into account and you personalize it. My suspicion is at your age with what looks like relatively robust carcasses, um your fear of anything other than uh, you know an unpleasant circumstance uh, is pretty low. In <clears throat> my own circumstance, <laughs> you know the risks are <laughs> the risks are larger and more real, and irrespective of what the collective thinks I should do, I have a sense of what I should do myself. <laughs>
0: It's important, especially, and again, we're not denying that there is, you know, a virus out there, but it's, it, it's something that, you know, and Nick, I think Nick and I agree there should be a freedom. Of yes. It's, you know, it's, to- it's
1: because, you know, here, here you can't walk, you, you know, it's like the whole, I can't go for a walk now. I have to worry about that. I can't go. I have a dog. I, I have two dogs. I like to go for walks, but now I have to worry about conflict because I want to go for a walk, but I cannot. So now there's this whole conflict, you know, and you know, it's, it's it, the progressive, the collective idiocy is fueling political power. And what history seems to sh- at least teach me in the context of what I've seen throughout history, Milton Friedman, everyone that I pay attention to is that more political power tends to yield economic suppression of the individual. And when you have more economic suppression of the indi- indi- individual, you tend to have more social conflict as a result. And then it spirals out of the control. So, you know, so I it just, it's something I pay attention to because through the darkness, you can figure out how to find the light. So it's more about, matter- its about yeah it's the optimization, you know, it's just it allows me to see why it's wrong or at least feels wrong. And then I can better allocate my energy and time to seeing what, well, if I want to fix this, if I want to solve this, if I want to bring some stability to our ecosystem, if I want to bring stability to our social environment, well, we have to bring alignment of the collectiveness, understand how political power impacts economics and how the consumer has power in the economy. Theoretically, that should be how it's supposed to be done, but political power deviates that. So, you know, COVID kind of, it, it was, a, COVID was a fantastic learning environment for me this year because I don't think what I've gone to observe and learn through this year by seeing the the exponential progress of political involvement in the economy has taught me something what appears that often time takes decades of observation and interaction with markets to realize that force.
2: Every generation learns the lesson their own way. I remember back to being, I guess, a little younger than you. Uh, two things, wage and price controls in the United States, which even as a teenager, I thought was idiotic. Mm-hmm. Um, Why should the government tell me how much I could get paid? (laughs) Uh, And why should they tell me how much I should spend for a can of beer or a loaf of bread? And the other was the Vietnam War. Uh, The idea, I I mean, if if you think not being able to walk your dog is bad, uh, think about uh, being taken out of school or away from your job, thrown into a uniform and shipped 18,000 kilometers away to be killed or kill people that you have no quarrel with. <laughs> um,
1: That's a conflict. Yeah,
2: uh, yeah. you know, Every generation gets to learn this stuff, unfortunately. <laughs> and, you know, everybody, everybody has their own circumstance. And I think that'll always be with us. So you, when you talk about changing consciousness, uh, you begin with yourself. I think one of the reasons why I often, uh, address libertarian and anarcho-capitalist groups and and say, if you really believe in the ideals of freedom, you have an obligation to succeed. Because if you succeed, you will come to be respected. And if you're respected, people will come to listen to your message. Uh, The very fact that you have accomplished something in life that's visible to other people gives your belief credence in their eyes the fact that I've been a success as an investor and in a few other aspects, interestingly, makes people think that I'm an expert in all kinds of things, which is really wrong, uh, but it's useful. <laughs> I get Way more respect uh, about uh, topics that I have no knowledge of than would otherwise be the case. So, you know, to the extent that you're nervous about the slow adoption of ideas that are important to you among your generation, The first thing that I need to say is make yourself anti-fragile. The second thing is make yourself a success and then use the credibility that's associated with your success to propagandize your generation. By the way, it's a lot of fun. I mean, uh,
1: it's just, you you know, I see it's, it's like, I feel because, you know, when, because when you, when you start contextualizing the debt load, you know, all these economic problems, I feel like I see the wave coming that burden that's coming my way in our generation and yes. myself, I understand I am getting ready for it. That's, that's my mission. That's my objective. That's why we do this. this is why we talk to people. But then for the people around me that I know are not paying attention to these things, I feel there's going to be a blindsided environment a moment where you're going to have wealth destruction. You're going to have a lot of pain and suffering that could have been avoided. If the government has simply said, guys, this is what we're facing as a problem. Let's collectively take on the brunt of the pain. So the outcome is something that we can collectively benefit from. But I feel like this is where the ego comes in and the deferring of problems and wanting to enjoy short-term benefits that we want to defer until the children have to suffer that consequence. And as you always say, the unborn children will be the, uh, will be the ones to, to pay that largest cost.
2: Could be. Um, Remember not to take on issues bigger than
1: yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes part of the journey is, uh, I, don't know, I, I, I feel like I, I, I'm enjoying trying to make something of this. Mm-hmm. Because that, it's an opportunity. It's something, it's it's not some, <laughs> I find it just, uh, there's a gap. That's This is the gap environment where very few people exist. And it's a way for me to find a way to expand it to reach out into my ecosystem and benefit the ecosystem by understanding these principles of economics and philosophy and collectiveness, but at the same time, individualism. Think of it as a business opportunity.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the fact that you can uh, conceive of and present uh, knowledge to people, uh, what's your opportunity cost? What's your production cost? It's zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you have something that's a value that you can sell to people, uh, where your opportunity cost—pardon me, your production cost—is zero, that's a pretty good margin. <laughs>
0: There's no uh, excuse now, too, 100%. with the way technology is that we're all doing it virtually, too. So, but think about it—we would have never. I
1: personally don't think that without technology, I would have never been able to observe. 2020 in real time, see how the markets were responding according to what politics, politicians were doing, what the Fed was doing, what the people were doing, how the global dynamics were working. And you just saw the correlations. I, this was like as bad as of a year this was overall. Personally, I am so happy that this was one of the greatest teaching moments of my life, because I now understand the correlation patterns, the causalities, the inputs, the outputs. And I can better optimize my framework and my thought process to make sure that every step I take moving forward has more of a beneficial output for myself and those around me. See,
2: life is good. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I have to step off. Um, Yeah, I was going to say um, we we want to
0: thank you so much for coming on. We really do appreciate Mm. it, uh, especially in this crazy world, Rick. So thank you so much for coming on here.
2: One thing I'd like to say to your young listeners, those of them who are already investors, Robinhood investors or not, uh, Sprott enjoys engaging in dialogue with investors of all ages and sizes. Uh, In order to incent your listeners to engage in this conversation, we always offer a complimentary, we meaning me, uh, portfolio review. Any of your listeners who would like to avail themselves of the service need only go to sproutusa.com forward slash rankings, list your natural resource stocks, please no technology stocks, no cannabis stocks. (laughs) Uh, And I will rank them personally one to 10 one being best 10 being worst, Uh, I will comment on individual issues where I think my comments might have value. And for those who mention charts, either in the question line or in the subject line, I'll send a, a 50 year Barron's gold mining index chart, which is the best visual representation of the anatomy of a gold bull market that's available, best because it's a 50-year long index and also because it's a broad and inclusive index. And I'll also include a 100-year commodity chart which will show visually just how cheap uh, industrial commodities are relative to other savings and investment asset classes across the society over 100 years.
0: That's awesome. Well, again, we really appreciate you coming on here. Um, the listeners can also find you on various social medias. You're on Twitter as well, right, Rick?
2: Um, very infrequently, as you might have gathered, I'm too loquacious for for Twitter, but I'm easy to find on YouTube and Google and places like that. Absolutely.
1: Real vision for people. Real vision and Kiko News is where I often see you and watch a lot of this stuff. Well, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of both mediums. Perfect.
0: Well, happy new year, Rick. Thanks again for coming Thank on. You. It's the first interview on the New Gen Mindset podcast, and we want to wish you all the best in 2021. Thank you. And read those books. Absolutely. We will. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank Tom. you. Take care.